Good morning. It's a joy to see your smiling faces and to be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But today on Easter, we are focusing even more so on the resurrection of our Savior. And my hope this morning is that as we look through our text and as we dig into it and we begin to understand it, we get a sense of the reality of the res- resurrection and all that that means for us. So we understand the importance of it and the reality of it. And that gives uh, us a renewed sense of purpose and a renewed strength for us to go out and face the world tomorrow, today, and for the week and the days to come after that. And so our text this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 through 20. And I chose this, like I said, so that we'd understand the importance of the resurrection and so we, we might know what is true for us as followers of Jesus Christ because of the resurrection. So grab your Bible, your bulletin if you need to. Follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll begin reading in verse 12 for a wider context. Verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I did a little research on this. Really, the question I was asking is, what people believe was the single greatest event in human history? I went to the internet, because that's where we find all answers, and I was shocked how many different options exist for this question? Some of the more ridiculous answers I got were the invention of ramen noodles, the invention of Legos, which we can thank the Danish for in 1949. Also, one of my favorites was the invention of the wiffle ball in 1953. That seemed hard to argue with at first. Not surprising was the birth of rock and roll. There were many more bizarre answers like you'd expect. Just about everything someone has put forward as the greatest event in the history of the world. However, I found the real answers a little more interesting. Uh, The ones where there was a great number of of people looking at this as as these are the events that really shaped the world. Many said that the invention of gunpowder was the greatest event in history. Gunpowder was invented in in China during the ninth century and it came about, and I found this interesting, uh, as alchemists were working to create a potion that would give someone who drank it eternal life. Ironically, instead, they invented a powder that would be used to end many lives and many wars over many years. Others have said that it was the invention of the printing press, which, of course, we in the West know was invented by who? Gutenberg, right? The Chinese claim they actually invented it 400 years before that, but since there's no printed documents of that, we'll go with Gutenberg. So that was really one of those things that was a major invention because it got printed material out to the masses. In fact, one of the things that got out was the very word of God. And so we looked at that as an amazing time in history. Also included in this list of opinionated ideas of human history and and what are the greatest events was the founding of Islam. 
The signing of the Constitution of the United States. Clearly that one's a little regionally based. The invention of democracy as a form of government, just in general. Uh, the automobile for transportation, computers, and the internet, and later after that, smartphones. Also on the list are many, many, many wars. The rise of the Roman Empire, and of course, the fall of the Roman Empire. The cure for polio, typhoid, measles, malaria. Some go all the way back to the invention of fire, while others look more recent to the invention of electricity and the light bulb so that we can work late into the night now. The list goes on and on. I'll stop here, though, because I think you know exactly where I'm going with this. It's no secret. The history of the world has really seen some amazing events, though. Amazing inventions. And we have seen these that they've actually changed the course of history, changed lives, changed nations, even changed the whole world. But only one event, one moment in time, one person not only changed the world, but all of eternity as well. That event we celebrate today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I find it interesting how little people care about this event. Not that they're adamantly against it, but they simply don't care. Like I say, it's not like you go outside and you're going to find some anti-resurrection protest going on. I don't think. I've never seen that. What's even more surprising is how little Christians seem to care about this event. Again, not in denial, but simple indifference, apathy towards it. We can't live there. We'll waste our lives. If we don't understand the importance of this event, we will absolutely waste our lives. The resurrection of the gospel in general is often received as, as though I were explaining the details of anti-venom to you. Say I'm talking to Travis. Travis, you get to be my example. And I tell him how interesting anti-venom is. And so I say, did you know that anti-venom is developed by harvesting venom from a snake? They put their mouth on a cup. And then they water it down, and then they inject it into a horse or a goat until that horse has an immune response and builds up antibodies to this venom. Those antibodies then are used to treat the snake bite on people. Travis hears this, and he might find that interesting in an academic, scientific way, but it's very different. At some point, I, I remind him, Travis, you were bit by a snake 10 minutes ago. Suddenly, this has a little more importance. Because anti-venom can save your life. And so let me remind you this April morning. You are snake bit. You are a sinner. So am I. Like a real sinner. Not only by our very nature, though that would certainly be enough, but sinners daily in our thoughts, daily in our actions. Which means that we can't be in the presence of a God who is holy. And really what this means is we have earned for ourselves the wrath of God for all of eternity. And you might also know this. On the cross, the penalty of sin was paid for all who trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Which really, on a day like today, raises an awkward question. If our forgiveness was paid for the death of Jesus on the cross, why does the resurrection matter at all? I actually asked this question to an older man in Panera this past week. I do that kind of stuff. I said to him, I see you're reading a, a Bible study. Am I right to assume that you're a Christian? He said, yes, and gave me a really weird look. And so I asked him, if Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins, why does the resurrection matter? I think he thought I was being a little antagonistic, and I wasn't. I'm pretty certain that he was of the belief that I was an unbeliever. Uh, he was very gracious to me, but he had no answer. None. 
I had no reason why the resurrection matters at all. He, he told me scholars would know and that I could talk to scholars. And I stayed incognito, in case you were wondering. I never told him why I asked. He never asked. The simple answer to this question, though, is one we ought to know. The simple answer to this question is that the resurrection is proof that the sacrifice worked. That it was accepted by the Father. It shows us that Jesus actually did defeat death. You know, I, I used to think that the resurrection was great, but if, if I'm completely honest, I, I wasn't all that impressed because it, it's not like Jesus was the only person in the scriptures who was brought back to life, right? Both the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, brought young boys back to life. Jesus brought Jairus' daughter back to life. Peter rose Dorcas, that's her actual name, Dorcas from the dead. And we all remember the story of Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the grave with just mere words. So what's the big deal here? I'll tell you what the big deal is. The two young boys, Jerry's daughter, Dorcas and Lazarus, all died again. They were risen back to life, but it was only temporary. In the power of God working these great miracles, they all cheated death for a while. It's only Jesus who defeated death forever. It's only Jesus who rose from the grave to eternal life, never to die again. So the hope of the gospel for us isn't that we temporarily cheat death. In many ways, modern medicine's already cheating death. The hope of the gospel for us is that we are resurrected to eternal life, never, never to die again. We look forward to our eternal life because Jesus has defeated death. And so when we look at our text today, the first thing that should be pretty obvious is that the people denying the resurrection, uh, the people that Paul is writing to, are frustrating him to no ends. He's annoyed at them. He's bothered by what they say. And that's really what's driving him to write this. If we look at verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? These people aren't denying only the specific case of Jesus' resurrection, but also the idea of resurrection at all, ever, anywhere, by anyone. In verse 13 through 15, the point is, if none are resurrected, then even Jesus was not resurrected. And if that's the case, then we have been preaching a lie, and there is no hope. You see, if Jesus is not resurrected, he can't be a good moral teacher. Instead, he'd be a, a crazy liar, or C.S. Lewis said, a lunatic. If Jesus isn't resurrected, then Paul chose to walk away from the prestige of his position in the Jewish community for nothing. If Jesus isn't resurrected, then Peter and Paul and the other apostles who scattered in fear at the death of Christ become bold proclaiming the gospel for a made-up lie. All to gain what? What do the followers of Christ actually gain if this is a lie? Beatings? Being ostracized, ridiculed, poverty, fractured family relationships, what did they gain? What would be their motivation? I don't want to go into it deep here, but if you want to see a convincing argument about the resurrection of Christ, then look at the apostles' response to Jesus' death. It's everything you'd expect. It's doubting, and it's fear, and it's running, and it's hiding, and they're gone. They want nothing to do with this anymore. They fear for their own lives, and, and then look at how they respond after seeing him resurrected. For Thomas, not only seeing, but, but touching him. 
After that, they stopped running. They stopped hiding. And their lives were poured out for the cause of proclaiming the gospel at great cost to themselves. Nothing can explain a change of this magnitude apart from the reality that they truly did encounter the risen Christ. For now, though, I want you to look back at our text with me. I want you to see something interesting. Verses 16 through 19 are written in the negative sense. What I mean is, Paul is telling them what will be true or what is true if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. And these are powerful statements, crushing really. Uh, and they end with verse 20, which is one of the most glorious flip switches in all of Scripture. Read just the first part of verse 20 with me, and then we're going to go back and look at 16 and 19. Verse 20, the first part, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That's simple enough. He's writing saying, you're right. If there is no resurrection, this is all stupid and pointless and worthless. But Jesus is resurrected. And that changes everything. And so here's what I want you to see in verses 16 through 19. First, what would be true if Jesus wasn't resurrected? We'll read them just like they're written. I want you to feel the weight of what he's saying. Uh, Second, because of verse 20, we're going to look at the opposite of the statements. I want you to see what is true because Jesus has been resurrected. There are four distinct things we can see from this text today as a result of Jesus being resurrected. So let's start verses 16 and 17. Read along. Look in your bullets in your Bible if you got it. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are in your sin. First of all, the words your and and you in verse 17, those are plural. I know I point these out to you all the time. I like to point these plurals out to you so that you know to read this with the church community in view. The church as a collective group and not just an individual self. That helps us to read this properly. What we see here then is that if Jesus died and stayed dead, then our collective faith is futile. Now, futile is not one of those commonly used words. No one runs around using this. In fact, the only example I can really think in my head of ever seeing this is the evil guy in the movie. Resistance is futile. (laughs) By which he means, you know, don't waste your time. Resisting won't work. It's a waste of your time. The actual definition of futile is incapable of producing any useful results. Effort that is pointless and worthless. Don't miss the weight of what's being said here in verse 7. If Jesus was just a wise teacher who died a martyr's death, that might be noble. But if that was all it was, then our faith in him is futile. It is worthless. But remember, the reality of the resurrection, the verse 20 flip switch, reverses this statement to show us what is actually true. And that means what we learn here is that our faith is not futile. To put it positively, your faith is effective. It is fruitful. It is valuable, profitable. It is worthwhile. Yes, your faith is expectantly hopeful, and rightly so. Christian, you can't be indifferent about the resurrection, because it is necessary for our faith to have any meaning at all. Okay, so the next thing we learn in this text, also in verse 17, is that if Jesus is not resurrected, then we are still in our sins, all of us. It means the sacrifice was not accepted. If Jesus is still dead, then your sins are not covered by the blood. And the wrath of God is what you still rightly deserve. 
Again, though, looking at verse 20, we reverse it because the resurrection did happen and Jesus is alive. And that means you are no longer in your sin. You still sin, yes. But your sin is washed white as snow by the holy blood of the Lamb. His death paid for our sins. But understand this. His resurrection shows it actually accomplished justification for us. That's exactly what we see in Romans 4, 24 and 25, which says, Jesus, the Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and hear this, raised for our justification. The resurrection means that God the Father accepted the payment of God the Son, and so now we who are united to Christ through faith stand justified before God. That's no small thing. Okay, so far, because of the resurrection, we've seen that our faith is valuable and effective for salvation. We've also seen that the payment for our sin has been accepted. In verse 18 now, we see a third thing that's only true if Jesus has risen from the dead. Look, it tells us if Jesus is not resurrected, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've perished. I did some preparation for this yesterday while while sitting in Sunset Cemetery. I was surrounded by stones. Stones that mark the dead bodies of actual people who actually lived like you and me and now are six feet underground there. It certainly helped me to get some perspective of of what's being said here in verse 18. This is about permanent destruction here. This is, he's saying if Jesus hasn't rose from the dead, then the dead are without hope. They are forever broken, forever dead. But Paul's whole point is we know that Jesus is risen. And so again, the reverse of this is what we can know to be true because of the resurrection. That means the dead are alive. Their soul is with Christ now. 2 Corinthians 5.8 tells us exactly that. And they will be reunited to their body at the final resurrection. That's what we look forward to. For those who have faith in Christ, though they are broken now, they will be made new. Though they are dead now, they will rise to eternal life. The truth of this means something profound. Well, I, I moved through Sunset Cemetery yesterday. I looked at the names on the stones, and you can see the ages of these people and, and when they lived. And, and I just kept thinking to myself, if their faith is in Christ, I'm going to meet them someday. We all will. I, I can't even fathom how great and really weird that's going to be. I don't, what will they know? Will we have to explain smartphones? to? I don't know. They, but I'm just intrigued by the reality that these bodies are going to be rose from the dead and God's going to reunite their souls together to live forever. You know that feeling of feeling rushed all the time that we constantly don't have time to get to know each other well? There is no time. Suddenly, you're free to, to do that. Suddenly, you're free to, to worship the Savior and we'll see perfectly. I can't wait. And so we've seen that because of the resurrection, our faith is valuable and effective for salvation. And we've seen that the payment for our sin has been accepted by God. And we've seen here that the dead have not perished, but are alive and will rise again. And now in verse 19, it gets down to the issue of purpose, of existence, of how we live a life that matters. Let's read it again and just let this soak in. Verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's how some people view Christians, isn't it? Pitied. Poor people believe that. It's not real hard to understand this verse. It's 
pretty difficult to accept it, I think. What Paul means here is, if the resurrection's fake, then people in the world, people outside the church, should feel sorry for us because we're wasting our lives. It's like we feel for the sweet old couple who invested all their savings in Enron stock before it turned out to be a scam, a, a worthless investment leaving their hopes for retirement destroyed. I mean, who can argue with that? If Jesus is dead right now, then we are forgoing a life of pursuing worldly hedonism for a life of pursuing biblical holiness. The bigger issue is, what's the point of life at all if, if Jesus is not resurrected? When we doubt the truth of the resurrection, despair can make a home in our hearts. So let us rejoice then for the truth of verse 20. Remember it says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And so let's reverse what we saw in verse 19. Because Jesus is resurrected, we are not to be pitied. The opposite of pitied is, is that we ought to be envied. It doesn't mean we will be envied, but we ought to be. Yes, envied. Because our life has real value, real meaning. You know, to complete the, the illustration of investing in stock, it's, it's like you might look at the guy who invested all he had in Apple stock in 2001 when it was seven bucks. As of Saturday, it was trading at $524. That's just money, though. The stakes we're talking about are, are bigger, and the payoff we're talking about is eternal. We whose hope is in Christ of all people should be envied. It shouldn't make you prideful. You didn't do anything. It was even God who opened your eyes to see, who softened your heart to believe, who gave you faith to trust in Jesus. I titled this sermon, Nothing Greater Than the Third Day. I hope you can see why. I hope you're able to see that there is no invention, no moment, no other event in history of the world that is more significant than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we've seen here, because of the resurrection, we know that our faith is valuable and effective for salvation. We know that the payment of our sin has been accepted by God. We know that the dead have not perished, but are alive and will be resurrected as well to eternal life. We know that we ought to be envied because our life has meaning. We have purpose. I do want to mention, though, particularly for any of you who might sit here today and think to yourself, I see how important the resurrection is, but I still struggle to believe it really happened. I know in the world that we live today, the idea that in the past Jesus rose from the dead and that in the future we will also rise from the dead seems nuts. I mean, I get it. The resurrection seems absolutely crazy. It, it seems insane to me at times, too. But then I remember... I live on a ball that floats in space with nothing holding it up. <laughs> nothing. How crazy is it then that this ball, this planet, is positioned perfectly away from the sun that we don't burn up in flames and we don't freeze to death in ice? That it all exists in a universe that seemingly has no end to it? How insane is it that we, we dwell in these bodies that when we cut ourselves, we don't do anything, it just starts to repair itself. I mean, how crazy is it that we even exist, or that you have the thinking ability to ponder why you exist? Cats don't do that, <laughs> I don't think. 
my point is that the resurrection isn't really that crazy. But more importantly, it's true. It's real. And it, it's true, and, and because of it, we sing today. Because of it, we lift our voices in praise, not to a good man who is dead that we're remembering, but to a great Savior who is alive and who hears our voices when we lift them to praise Him. A great Savior who in the second half of verse 20 tells us is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The, the first fruits were an offering. It was an example of what the rest of the crop would be like. You see these beautiful peaches? Well, guess what? There's a whole orchard just like them still to come. Uh, Jesus rises first and then later comes the rest of the harvest. That's, that's the Apostle Paul here. Uh, that's St. Augustine. That's Luther and, and Calvin and Wesley. That's my grandparents who believed in Christ. That's us. That's Christ's church in all times and all locations. All whose faith is in Christ, which is exactly what we see in Romans 10.9 where we read, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Brothers and sisters, today, let us boast in the cross because the tomb is empty. Our Savior lives. And so this Easter morning, this resurrection day, may we rejoice today in one amazing truth. Jesus Christ is risen. 